Hey everyone, Sonkin here, and uh, today we have a very super special episode of the formerly known as 420 Metalhead Wrestling Podcast. Uh, big for two reasons. One, we have our first huge icon of heavy metal guest, uh, none other than the tremendous bassist of bands like Death, Testament, Sadus, Ice Earth. He uh, doesn't really need much introduction. I hate it when people say that, but we're giving him one anyways. We have the King Kong bass player, Steve DiGiorgio. Uh, additionally, we also would like to announce that we are rebranding this podcast, and from here forward, it will be called Double Hell with Mike and Leon. So enjoy, sit back, relax. We're going to get into Certain Death by Sadus, the kind of band that started it all for Steve. And after that, we're just going to jump on into the interview. So enjoy. Thanks.
You're a busy man. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of, yeah. I'm just fortunate that I found something I'm good at because everything else kind of not so busy. <laughs> right on. Right on. You're, you're, you're amazing. Uh, like I said, uh, the two death albums are just fucking amazing. Uh, human, human was just so good. Individual thought patterns. I mean, they're just a step above everybody else. You know, playing death metal at that time, it just changed the whole genre. Yeah, we we were just young pups back then, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think we knew what we were doing. But it, but it came across, man. It was just when you listen to so much other death metal, then it just didn't have the you know not knocking the other bands, but uh, you know when you listen to Sadist or you listen to those death albums, the technical playing is just so amazing. I mean, it just it reached out to a whole different level of fans, in my opinion. I remember, you know, getting it back on cassette back in the day. You know, that was, you know, the cassettes when uh, that was still popular. <laughs> oh, yeah. You remember making, you getting a Maxell and putting everything you want on there and then writing everything on the label, organized and everything. Yep. Yeah, everything's changed now. Everything. So my kids always make fun of me because I'm about 10 years behind on uh, most technology. So... <laughs> But, uh, you know, there's just uh, a lot of good stuff, definitely. Now, uh, my first question, I guess, is who influenced you, you know, when you were, before you started playing? I know you, you know, uh, Sadist came out, I think, 84 was the first album, right? First Sadist album was in 88. 88, okay, but you guys put demos out in, like, 84, maybe, maybe it's where I'm Yeah, 84 was actually when we, when we made the band. We were still all in high school, and we just, it was just like an after-school jam gotcha. thing. And you did the Red demo, I think, right? No, the no, red demo between albums, yeah. 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 Death Deposed um, in eighty six. Death I think came out in eighty six. So we yep. spent all of eighty five just kind of playing kegger parties and bowling alleys and just kind of developing what we were. Right. You know. We were like you know, like seventeen years old or whatever. So we really didn't know about you know, we were kind of slow to the game about making demos and, and spreading our stuff because pretty much from a kind of a small town it's 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 not small like mayberry or nothing but it's it's just suburban <laughs> it's away from the cities so there there was really nothing going around here and there was a band at that time that had been around for a couple of years called bloodbath yep. yep and uh a couple of those guys showed us you know how to we were just sitting around partying and they were like yeah you got to make a demo and you know, go to a real studio and record your stuff that represents who you are. And then you send, and they had this stack of like Xerox, you know, stapled together fanzines. And they're showing us like, look, this one's from Greece and this one's from England. And this one, you know, and like send your tape to these places. And they just, they showed us how to do it. And we were like, oh, trippy. We just thought we'd just get about 50 people in a kegger and we were set. But <laughs> Right. So that that started the whole, you know, entrance for us to get into the underground tape trading and fanzine circuit. Once we did that, you know, then we were a real band, we, you know, addressing letters to freaking Germany and all these crazy places. So we were like, oh, cool. We got to get on a plane and go play there now. Now, some of the, some of the, uh, some, I could be incorrect, but didn't some of the bloodbath guys go on to be an autopsy, a form autopsy? No, personnel wise. You're wrong, but proximity, it's probably easy to confuse that because we were all kind of in the same gotcha. location. When the Sadist guys hooked up with Death, at the time, Death was two guys. It was Chuck and Chris. Right. And I never really like officially joined the band, but because they didn't have a bass player, I just 
joined in and to me it just kind of felt like helping them rehearse just to have you know more instruments besides two guys but you know we we were planning on moving on with that lineup so that they could do shows and stuff so i don't know it was kind of a weird hybrid member of the band so i got to know them pretty good both the guys obviously we started hanging out a lot because of all that and then after a certain period of time chuck had bailed basically he just completely bailed he just he, he first he told us he was just gonna fly home for a week it was his birthday and he wanted to visit his family so we we're like all right no problem he's flying home but once he got there he never came back we didn't even really talk to him for a whole month wow. and yeah, it was weird. It was just he had had he had enough of the area, had enough of struggling. He had he kind of left Florida to come to the Bay Area. This the Bay Area was you know in the mid '80s. It was the hot place of all the new bands and venues. Yeah, you know the history of what came out of here. So he wanted to, where he was from in Orlando, which is even a couple hours away from Tampa. Tampa was developing a scene, but when you're like 16, 17 years old, you don't. You know, a couple hours driving a car is like massive. So he didn't feel like Florida had anything for him. So he had come to California to, to get, kick his band off. And he had been here for quite a while going through different musicians. We had met him, you know, after he had already been here for, for a while. So when he bailed, he just, he kind of needed to regroup himself. And, you know, just kind of needed support from mom again. And just, I don't know, he had a long, long go of it here being poor. And... When he finally answered the phone, when he was done freaking hiding, <laughs> we, Chris was just like, what's up? What's up with the band? And, you know, Chuck told him, like, look, it's cool. You you know, I, you could still be in the band, but I'm not coming back out there. So you need to come here and crash at my place if you want to be in the band. And Chris was just the way it was all presented. You know, nothing was plan- pre-planned or talked about. He just kind of took it like... It wasn't a cool thing. You know, he's like, nah, I'm not going to go. He was he was a couple years younger than us anyway, and he was still in high school and just didn't feel right for him to drop out. So all of a sudden, here's Chris Reifert out of death. And since I had been hanging with those two guys, all the sadist guys in death kind of merged as one kind of cool group of friends. You know, all of a sudden, Chris didn't really have band practice anymore. He didn't really have much to do. And... You know, and being just, especially Chuck and Chris were like fucking chronic stoners. Um, so I I introduced them to a couple of friends that I had gone to school with for years. I had known these guys, I don't know if it was elementary school, but it was definitely middle school up through high school. And they were both named Eric, two buddies named Eric, and they both smoked hella weed. And they both, one was a guitar player, one was a bass player. And I just, just introduced it to them, figured, ah, oh, you need somebody to hang out with, you know, and just... Where I can get stoned all day, and right. and as a result of that, they just they formed the band, and that's how Autopsy started. And okay. um, yeah, so that was, that was kind of a long way of going around about it, but right. that's the history behind it. So in that same time period, Sadis getting out playing warehouses, playing bowling alleys, playing kegger parties in people's backyards and stuff like that. Autopsy or uh, Death was slowly joining us. We had friends in a band called Hex. And we were doing kind of our, our own surge. We weren't part of the, the main group of Bay Area metal friends, you know, like Violence and Forbidden Evil. And there was like this whole big batch of bands. But right. Zest was kind of like the king band of them all because they had 
they had already been at it for years. You know, they had a big following and they were killer. You know, Zest was like the top. Death Angel was up and coming. There was this whole huge circuit and they didn't, didn't really take to us. We were kind of like hicks that had a bunch of friends that hung out with us that liked to fight. So they were kind of like, nah, get rid of those guys. They beat everyone up. Not the band, but our friends. Right. And, um, and so as a result of that, we formed our own little clique. And Bloodbath was, you know, part of that little group that we had. So they were around and they would be mentioned in these stories and stuff. But yeah, they were kind of separate of autopsy. But, but we were all... We were all there doing it in those days. So, my question um, would be, you know, obviously, like you're, like in many ways, kind of like considered like the the, the fretless guy. Um, I guess you know a lot of times when people think about you know fretless bass and that sort of like virtuosity associated with bass playing, you know, obviously like people think of like jazz musicians. And I guess I'm just kind of wondering, like, when were you were you simultaneously you know getting into like metal and listening to guys like Stanley Clark and Jaco Pistorius, or was it kind of like a was it like an evolution, like just kind of the technicality of metal, and then sort of discovering these guys that are just you know monsters at their at their instrument, or you know I guess kind of just like elaborate on how like your you know your fascination with jazz music kind of played into all this Ooh, i guess i kind of came into the whole thing a little bit later than everyone else i i was kind of a band geek at school i was going through music class i started as a little kid um playing you know in the band classes on um mostly like wind instruments those were the easy ones you know it was, it was like impossible to get on a drum kit or you know bass or guitar were out of the question even even a cool wind instrument like a sax it was just a line to play that stuff and mm. so i just kind of bounced around and tried different instruments as i was going up through the grades and when i was getting into high school i was kind of i was think i was still on tuba and um i was in the high school jazz band and it was the it was the jazz band that kind of um had like competitions like we did more than just uh, during the day school stuff like we would meet on thursday nights or the weekend and travel and we'd play against other high school jazz bands stuff like that um in that group i was playing bass trombone actually and one of the other trombone players had a cool electric bass that i think he i don't know if he brought it to school if i went by his house but i was like one of the first times I'd ever really messed around on one of those instruments. And it was, it was cool because around that same time I was getting in to, you know, the, the monster bass players, you know, like Steve Harris, Getty Lee, you know, geezer Butler, Chris Squire, this type of stuff. It's kind of the, you know, the young developing years of music. And that's the stuff I was finding and, and everything. I mean, from, you know, Blizzard of Oz to the Rainbow Records, every every band, you know, back then, the, the bass was just a really prominent, important part yeah, Rudy of the Sar heavy music. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy Sarzo yeah, is amazing. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you see the videos and he's playing it upside down and, and it was cool and you could hear it. I mean, like, even like Crazy Train, the first thing you hear is the freaking drums and bass. So, I mean... It just, it was an appealing thing to do that, you know, and, and seeing Rush in concert, that was one of my earliest concerts I went to, and I was just like, oh, shit, this dude's badass, you know, it was, it was cool, and I had played, 
I played maybe a whole year, if not one semester, in the orchestra class, and I was on upright bass. And when you learn a string instrument like that in school, they just give you a book, and the book shows these little illustrations. It's like you put your hand here, and this is position one, and these are all the notes you can reach in position one. You memorize it, and then you you slide up, which is actually downwards, but it's up the neck. And here's position two, and here's all the notes. And you just go like that. And I just I learn uh, the upright bass like that, like just you know, because when you're an older kid in high school and you're starting a new instrument, it's not like you're a young kid where you really have a teacher hovering over you teaching. They just kind of, they throw you in a practice room with a book. They're like, Oh, you want to change instruments? Well, here, go teach yourself. So I had just basically stared at this book and just kind of played all the notes on the four strings and memorized where they were. And, you know, around that same time is when, when the, my classmate had brought in his, his fender, I think it was. And I just, it was weird. It was the same notation as the upright bass. Like all the notes were in the same spot, but here's these frets, here's these markers, these dots. I mean, all these things that just help you find the notes. And I already memorized them all from, you know, the upright bass is virtually a fretless instrument with no markers, no. <laughs> so when I finally got my first electric bass, all I could do was think about how I could change it into kind of what I learned on. You know, I wanted to make it a mini upright bass. And I had a cousin around my same age. I was playing bass at the time. And he was just, he just blurted out simply like, oh, well, why don't you just buy a fretless neck and bolt it on there? And I was like, cool. <laughs> so it took me a couple of years to get around to it, but that was the bass that, was played on uh, Autopsy's EP and the, the one on individual thought patterns. That fretless bass is that original bass that I bought as a, you know, as a it's, kid. It's a, it's that a I, Frank. It's a Franken bass. It is. It's a total like garage project. Um, I put all these different pieces on there. It. I don't know if anything original. The body is the only thing left of the bass that, you know. I first bought it in a music store, but yeah, it's like a total Frankenstein. And I don't know if, if the quality and the level of workmanship on that bass really justified how much it, you know, <laughs> appeared and like everybody's still checking out individual top. I don't know. Oh, that bass is so cool. And all I could think of is like, damn, I just, I had about three screwdrivers in my garage and I just forced the freaking screws to the wood. <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of a legendary uh, slash piece of crap, but you still have it. I don't know. Oh yeah, I still got it. Nice. I don't know what to do with it because after I stopped playing it, it seemed like it just kind of it's it's like if you drive your car every day, you know everything works great in your car, but if you leave it sit in the garage for two years and you take the tarp off of it, it just seems like you got to really, you know, get breathe life back into it. That's kind of what happened to the base. It just feels weird. It feels like it just kind of got worse with, <laughs> with no use so it's even more a piece of crap now but it's it's a uh, memorabilia for obviously sentimental to me were kind of what put me on the map and like kind of preface this whole explanation like in other words in your question when you said i'm kind of known as that guy i always look at that base and say well 
that's an old friend that helped get me that, you know, so <laughs> I keep it, but it's, it's not very playable. <laughs> yeah. I always, I, I always really found it fascinating how, you know, a lot of guys that are known for playing in like these, like, you know, more heavy, like extreme metal bands, death metal bands, et cetera. When you sit down and ask them, so what do you listen to, man? They'll be like, Oh, you know, return to forever and <laughs> like shit like that. And it's like, Oh, okay. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's interesting. You know, guys like, uh, I remember I saw an old interview with, uh, the old mayhem drummer, uh, Hellhammer, or whatever his name. And he's like, yeah, I love Dave Weckl. He's like my favorite drummer of all time. And it's just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> you like these like super, like super, like checky jazz guys. Like interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know his age. He's probably close to my age. So uh, you guys probably are too, but when, when you're growing up in the seventies, I mean, even, even pop music fusion, like Chuck Mangione was on the, on the radio and yeah, um, Herb Alpert. Yeah. Herb Alpert, you know, there, it was, there was nothing super techy or challenging about it, but it was a reflection of how close the, what do you call it? Like shred fusion, <laughs> you know, the, the underground, like the Miles Davis and the, and that kind of stuff like weather report. Well, then again, Weather Report was on the radio. They had they had catchy tunes that they would play. So that stuff was around. And I also benefited from my mom being really, um, you know, a total music head. You know, she didn't listen to anything heavy. But, you know, I found a lot of the jazz and jazz fusion through her record collection. You know, it was like every third record would be Elvis. And I'd kind of throw that aside. But at least there was a lot of good you know, shred in there. And it was just, you know, if we go on a long car ride on the weekend, she'd pop in a track of something. And, and, um, you know, besides the fusion and stuff of those days, like the stuff on the radio, even like kind of disco oriented or, I mean, especially with the old fidelity of, of stereos in the seventies, when, when you get that boom, 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 you get that bass pumping through these crappy speakers, really that's, it's just vibrating. That's all you really hear. It was really easy to tune in to bass of, you know, anything from, you know, like Stevie Wonder had killer bass lines in his music and, um, God, anything, the, even like, some classic, all, all the session playing on all that stuff is just remarkable. I mean, even oh, like, totally. like, the, like the shittiest pop song earwig that you can't get out of your fucking head. Uh, like the playing on that stuff in the seventies and even the eighties was just remarkable. But it was like one of those, I think it was a period we just had a, such a dearth of extremely talented session musicians, just like non at the bit, like, give me work, give me work. I'll play whatever. I don't care. Um, yeah, that's totally true. And so you combine all the little flavors out there, you, you know, the fusion of the time, the pop, the disco, all that stuff. And then once, you know, the heavy, like Zeppelin's got cool bass, but it's not necessarily a heavy band, but that Zeppelin gets you into, you know, Kiss and Nazareth, and then you're listening to Rush and Triumph, and then it's just growing, and then Sabbath is coming around, and then you're like, oh shit, and you get older, and then Priest is getting better, Accept is coming out, and then all of a sudden there's a band called Merciful Fate that sounds like, you know, Evil Iron Maiden, it just gets better and better, and you're just, and that's kind of where, you know, I was getting my influences, you know, being, like you said, like a session player that with not only hunger, but like a little bit of, you know, obnoxiousness, like, like notice me, notice me, you know, yeah, you got a, you got a chip on your shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. You're playing out your ass so that you could be somebody, you know, 
Were you and, a fan of Jack Bruce? Not really. Um, I guess the problem with me and that band is the the whatever the four or five songs that are played ad nauseum that everybody knows. Right, right. Like the, those songs, I can't stand. Now, obviously, like any band, you know, they get a they get a pop hit that gets you know gets the machine running. But if you dig into their catalog, you find some really interesting stuff. I never got that far with Cream because I couldn't stand those really cheesy songs that were overplayed. Sure. I just I just I didn't like it. I realize that there is some goodness buried in there because he's a respected player and I would catch, you know, the footage of some video concert or something and I'm looking at it like, oh fuck. Killer. And and just, you know it's only, it's a I little bit like had, I thought he had killer tone I thought he had killer tone. That was like really all he does. My, he's a very unique know. player. He he's set like a standard. Like when when you're a guy that other killer bass players or any musician from matter point to for whatever tone or chops or any kind of thing, then you know then you're you know you're doing something right, and that dude obviously comes with massive respect. So I, I don't know, maybe one day feeling nostalgic, I'll dig into these bands that I never really got. Like I was gonna say just now, like the Who's kind of the same way. Like I realized that almost every bass player I like cites John Entwistle as their influence but every time I see it it's just like this really out of tune guitar and this I can't stand that singer and I'm just like eh, I can't get into it but obviously there's something good there because it's been it's been referred to by many greats so I don't know are you a big are you a big John Paul Jones guy um sure yeah see like I mean, that's kind of I mean that that's like and, and again I don't want to like sit around and be like oh overrated i'm kind of that same sort of sure like he's not like my favorite i definitely appreciate that rhythm section how you know prolific they were and remarkable for the time i just i don't know i I tend to agree like he's he doesn't really like he's not the first guy i mentioned from that i would mention like a geezer butler or something like that before him well geezer geezer's slithery man he he taught bass players how to you know, find the cracks and crevices and, and, you know, play aggressively and, you know, stand up on the edge of the stage, you know, and geezer, he was, he was a good, he was a guitar player. Right. And they're like, Oh, we don't need a second guitar. Can you play bass? He's like, uh, I guess that's kind of how I had it explained to me. Probably. There's a lot of bass players like that. Um, where John Paul Jones, I think is a great example of what a lot of people imagine bass to be like it's this super solid support instrument and not just supporting in the background but supporting by being you know you could count on that guy like he wasn't like like obviously jimmy page is freaking drunk and he's sour and he's all over the place and robert plants the freaking star and you know so he got this bass player that's just like dude play the riff and stay on it so we could fuck around and do improvised shit on top of it. So he had a good kind of solid, you know, I don't want to say in the pocket because clearly he was more than that. But yeah, so I mean, I don't want to rip on him, but he's not doing anything flashy. He's not like, he's not tearing it up. It was just like a year or two ago, me and Gene Hoagland are walking on the back of one of these huge stages, big festival stage. And the stage itself at that time was going through a changeover. So they were 
just moving gear and the people were kind of in other words it wasn't a show happening at the moment and we're walking on this stage and the the drummer with all the dreads he's just sitting there like on a riser doing something and me and gene walk by and he goes and here comes the best rhythm section in metal right on you know gene he knows everybody he's a freaking ambassador and he's all oh, good shakes his hand you know right on thing and walk away and i just went dude not only do you, does he know you but he knows us and he goes, <laughs> he's like oh yeah he's he's a big fan of our stuff man you should talk to him he's a cool guy i'm like oh shit <laughs> i had no I, idea i feel like that never, that's gotta never get old right like when the oh, hell no shit like that like getting just any sort of acknowledgement from like even if it's not somebody that you're like directly into it's just like that acknowledgement of your peers you know it's like that guy played drums for ozzy for like what 20 years right a long time yeah. yeah, I didn't. I didn't know it was that long. I remember. I remember because he was he was in the band when Trujillo was on bass, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's God. Don't get me going on my Trujillo story. That's fucking that. That talk about acknowledgement of your peers. That blew me freaking away, man. I guess I got to tell it now. You guys want to <laughs> hear it? No. So anyway, real quick, me and Peter, me and Eric Peterson are walking out of a catering room at this big festival, and Rob Trujillo from Metallica walks up fucking geeks out on me and i'm not even exaggerating the best thing about this whole meeting when we were done is i just turned to eric and i just went i'm so glad you were here because no one would believe it coming out of my mouth like trujillo's like knows my name freaking out starts talking about not only death albums but songs that one part in that one song that goes like this and he's freaking out fucking giving me the horns just going dude you're just you're one of my influences, man. That shit's badass. All that fretless craziness. And I'm just like, holy shit. I was, I stood there and just listened to him. I didn't, I didn't really know what to do. It almost felt like a setup. Like I was being punked or something. I'm like, this isn't real. Like, how does this dude, like, it wasn't just like, like name dropping. Like, yeah, I know you, you played in that band. Or it was like a dude who was fucking excited. Like, dude, that one song, man, you doing that shit on the drums that's badass i'm like fuck he knows he's knowledgeable he's a he's a legitimate fan it blew me away so that was cool all the guys in testament were teasing me after that because you know Trujillo's a bona fide rock star man he's bass player royalty and we're driving away on our tour bus and they're throwing shit at me like eh, you got a fan dude you got a fan why don't you get a support slot on metallica tour come on come on <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that was funny. We're going to pause for a second and get into a track that Steve played on off the death album Human. Here's Lack of Comprehension, and check out that intro.
being you're in the Bay Area growing up, did you ever see Cliff Burton play live? Uh, in the, you know, in the, young, in the club days or anything before Metallica got big? Oh yes, I definitely did. Definitely did, and even after Ride the Lightning came out, you could tell that they were larger than life. You know, they were huge. They weren't, obviously, they hadn't done anything with Master of Puppets. This is still the cycle of Ride the Lightning, but they're, you could tell they're huge, man. They were, and they would still come out to all the shows and hang out. They were completely visible, completely approachable. Now, James was kind of like a brat. Like, he just, like if he wanted to say hi, he'd say hi. If he wanted to rip on what you were wearing, he would just do it. But you're like, whatever. He's, he's a freaking frontman and famous guy. I'm just, everyone just kind of gave that kind of obligatory laugh. Like, ah, yeah, yeah, my shirt sucks. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the two small guys, uh, Kurt, and Lars would be like, I remember this venue in San Francisco, famous venue called the Kabuki, and everyone played there. And I think we're watching Raven, and I don't remember, maybe it was like Megadeth or something. Oh. And oh yeah, 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 it was. It was it was uh, Exodus, Megadeth, and we go in the bathroom, and it's pretty crowded, and there's people smoking, and people doing lines, and people obviously people go in the bathroom, and standing at the urinal taking a piss and all of a sudden it's like you feel this squirt like wetness and you're like fuck no i hope no one's peeing on me you turn around and it's lars and kurt filling up little kid squirt guns in the sink like squirting people as they're pissing and they're giggling and shit they're like yeah and we're like no way this is the metallica dudes what the hell's happening <laughs> and then so so you got james like kind of royalty hanging out he's got his like kind of his little entourage around him and then you got the guys in the bathroom. And, and of course, me, I'm like, well, where's the cool guy? Where's the bass player? He's in the lobby, kind of like where the merch goes, like the, the foyer or whatever. And he's dressed in complete denim, just jeans and jean jacket and everything. And he's just chilling out, talking to people. And I remember uh, a friend of mine, older guy, he was teasing me. He's like, go say hi to him. I was scared to death. I'm like, no. He's like, go say hi to him. I'm like, fuck that. And he goes, watch, I'll do it, and then you got to do it. I'm like, all right. So he goes up there, he shakes his hand, and he goes, man, you're King God bass player. And Cliff's like, right on, kind of pats him on the shoulder. And Buck just wanted to say, right on, man, fucking, you rule. And he's like, cool, man. He walks away, comes up to me, and he goes, see, tell cool, go do it. Go do it, man. And I was like, fuck, all right. So I walk up there, and he's talking to somebody. I'm kind of standing there waiting for my chance. And finally, I just, you know, and so this is 85, I guess, so. I'm 17 years old. He's probably like 21. That's a huge age gap back then. And I was just like so nerdy. And I just walked up there because my friends are sitting over there staring at me like, you better fucking do it. I'm like, all right. So I go up there. His clipboard and he's got long hair. He's got like black gloves on with the fingertips cut out and his jean jacket. And I go up and I finally get a chance. And I just go up. And I remember my friend went, walked up and goes, you're fucking King God bass player. So I was like, all right, I walk up and I go, hey man, King Kong's a bass player. And I put my hand out. He looks at me and he goes, dude, you must be high as fuck, man. And I was shaking. I was like, 
And I was about to say no, I wasn't. I mean, we had awesome. we had been drinking, we've been drinking beers in the parking lot, but we weren't on anything heavy. Oh, and, then, and then he he goes, "You must be high as fuck." And I just froze, and he goes, "And that's cool, man. That's cool with me." He put his hand down, he shook it, and I walked away. And I was, thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, "There's no way my friend heard that. There's no way he just saw a cool interaction." And I'm off the hook. He walks up, and he goes, "Come on, let's go in the crowd, man." And we're walking into the little tunnel to get back in the van. He turns to me, and he goes. King Kong, huh? You're fucking weird. And I was just like, damn it. I finally met Cliff Burton and I told him King Kong's a bass player. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, the fucking scared little nerd. But but he was like that, though. He would just hang out and let people come up to him. You know, if it was modern times, he would probably do a million fucking selfies and shit. You know, just he was that kind of guy. He just was there hanging out. Right. Shit, I was even at a show in Berkeley. Death Angel was playing. Check out this lineup. Whiplash, Possessed, Death Angel. Wow. And I don't know. I'm I'm going back into memory and doing a weird estimate, but I'm going to say there was about 60 or 70 people there. It was yeah, it was pretty sparse. And these band and Possessed and this is when Possessed was normally just like a total jeans and t-shirt band. And this night they just wore complete armor they had gauntlets and spikes and freaking everything and then they were up there just talking about pentagrams and sacred cities and banging their head it was scary you know they're like holy shit and death angels playing and there's like 10 people up close to the stage and cliff burton's one of them he's just banging his freaking head he's got his fist in the air he's spitting like every 30 seconds just fucking just yeah fucking badass he was so into death angel death angel looked like they were about 12 and it was and he was just like that and then it sucked too because we were just like dude metallica's bass player is fucking rocking out with like five people in front of death angel this is badass and then like later in the night this fucking drunk dude i don't know what we didn't hear what was going on we just saw the thing but all of a sudden this drunk dude just fucking blasts him right in the face. Just boom! Hits him. The cliff goes down. Of course, it was a big Rodney King mob after that. This drunk dude got his ass beat for doing that. But I was just thinking, like, damn, how could you hit fucking Cliff Burton, man? That's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> that was the Bay Area, man. Everybody was on speed and smoking weed. and It was just all these... Whoever was playing was just an excuse for whoever wasn't playing to come hang out. Right, the music scene there just must have been amazing at that time. So many bands, you know, coming out of there, it's amazing. It was, and I guess we didn't realize it was amazing until it kind of faded away. Right, and then you're kind of like, wow, what happened? Like there was always killer shows and good hangouts and all kinds of stuff going on, and then like all the bands started around the same couple of years. So they all got signed around the same time and they all started flying away and going on tour and playing the festivals in Europe around the same time. And then once the nineties came around, there was like this huge void of nothing <laughs> just yeah. disappeared. All the bands were still active, but no one was doing the local thing anymore. Well, just, and this, unfortunately the scene over here started to change too. You know, yeah. when you got your grunge music and, and shit like that. Yeah, I was going to ask kind of like, you know, since your career kind of spans like from the 80s up until, you know, now, obviously, like, what was it like kind of seeing that transition to, into like the early 2000s, the aughts or whatever, the early 2000s, the late 90s, kind of like seeing 
maybe some of like the critical attention or I guess like early hype dissipate at that point you're kind of like all in this is what you do now kind of explain I guess going through that sort of process and like what whether you guys were affected by it personally or whether it was kind of like almost a blessing because you guys got to maybe got to you know get a little bit more creative or I don't know maybe just kind of like go through the different different decades no, it, it was a hard time I mean when you're coming up through the 80s it felt like anything was possible you know you're influenced by bands of the late 60s and 70s and you're active in the 80s and that's what your goals are all about you know you want to you want to get to where you have your own plane with your logo on and you're going all the way and you know once the mid 90s hit it just the everybody hit the wall there was i mean except for like cannibal corpse um probably just a few others that kind of maintained somehow through those downtimes i mean death had come to an end um chuck had completely disbanded and and ended death after the symbolic tour i think that was 95 um the sadist did three records to start with we did 88 90 92 so by the mid 90s um we were going through huge changes we went from a four piece to a three piece. We were off Roadrunner records and we just kind of did what everyone else did. And that was just kind of a lot of nothing. And with, with death being over, I didn't have that option. Um, yeah, it was tough. And it was around that period of time, mid nineties that I had a couple kids too. So it, not one didn't cause the other, but it was coincidental that it just felt like I don't want to say it felt like it was over, but it definitely the focus had changed and I was kind of out of it for a while. In fact, the only thing that really kept me creatively active was I made my own fusion band. It just felt like, you know, with metal being kind of, I don't know. It just, it went in two directions. Like, the big bands all started like turning kind of poserish. Like Ozzy was getting like a freaking hairdo and wearing sequins, and and Def Leppard just went totally just gay. I don't know how to explain it, but <laughs> the big bands had just gone all corporate, like radio oriented, just pop hits, you know, sugary, yucky pop hits, yeah. and the underground just got discombobulated. Like Slayer was almost playing like street metal, like yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, remember the music that? It was a big switch. Yeah, yeah. everything was, was everything switch. was different. Everything like, like Def Leppard. If you listen to the first two albums, doesn't sound anything like the later albums. Totally, like everything changed, and it just it was frustrating because of course everybody had the answer. Everybody knew what to do. You know, of course, like oh, we gotta, you know, that's what we do now. We gotta get on the radio, and it's like, dude, we played freaking thrash metal like how do you get on the radio it's <laughs> stupid and so i just i got frustrated with music um i had a couple babies that needed attention i was working full-time a lot um so it felt more relaxing to me to just start from zero with something totally new i had a friend from childhood all through school who didn't jump around and change instruments like me he he was a sax player from little kid all the way up 
to that time and, he, and because of that he was like shredder like his listening tastes were the same as mine like he would he would put on a record and just for fun play along to a rush song or you should, you should hear this cool sax line he made for iron man playing with Sabbath. it was it was cool and so he had kind of a heavy aspect to him but he was like this killer sax player and he knew all the jazz and fusion i mean he was listening to you know freaking um I can't think of his name, trumpet player. Um, he's listening to all that stuff. And, and I just told him, I said, let's just, I got a cool drum machine. I had already met Gene Hoagland, and he was the ultimate expert on Elise's drum machines back in those days. Um, so I was programming like really cool beats, not just Casio style play along, but I was putting roles, doing odd times programming. So we would just, me and him just started playing with a drum machine. That was our band for months. And because of it, we were, we were, you know, honing it in and getting really cool songs out of it. So we we reached out and we found a drummer and a guitar player. Actually, our first guitar player in my fusion experiment was Eric Cutler from Autopsy. Because, you know, we had we had grown up in the same town and, you know, when you're when you're buddies like that and musicians for so long, it doesn't, there's no like, he's a metal guy, he's a rock guy. It's just frick it. Here's some music, play it. And so, so here's Cutler with his freaking wah pedal. He's doing like, uh, oh, what's that song? Like a cop, cop theme show music, like walk, 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 walk on his wah pedal. And we're playing this freaking technical fusion you know bass and sax duets over tech beats and he's got his wall waka, waka, waka. <laughs> it was cool um but he, that didn't last forever and we got a different guitar player it was more blues oriented it kind of elevated our style and i was doing that for a couple of years really i guess that's kind of what kept me afloat during this weird metal transition period i didn't it wasn't completely up by design. I just got lucky it worked out like that. But I was doing that for a while. And then just kind of out of the rubble of everything, um, we got Sadis going again. We, you know, we had this long break and we did, we just, you know, dusted off everything, got our practice room set up, started working on a new album. And, be, and, as we were going around the Bay Area searching for a studio, I ran into an old guitar player friend named James Murphy that I remember from autopsy or from obituary and death. And and he's just like, hey, come, you know, I just I have almost everything done. I just never even really thought about who's gonna do bass. Come do the bass on it. Cool. So I'm sitting in James's studio, old buddy of mine, playing on his solo record. And all of a sudden, he just tells me, like, oh, yeah, I didn't tell you. Um, I'm back in Testament now. Uh, you know, I'm doing the solos over at, over at Eric's studio. And he's all, yeah, they need a bass player. Let me see what they say. I was like, all right. Wait, so what year was this? Day, was this, like, 98? Yep, exactly. Okay. And so because of because of like Sadis getting back together and deciding to make new music with I mean James play on his album because of that I got kind of ushered into the Testament lineup and around that time it felt like everybody else was starting to make a comeback and 
you know, Death Angel came out of a long hiatus. I think Anthrax had been off for a while. Uh, a lot of bands were like reuniting and waking up. And it's almost like we just kind of said, oh, we're sick of not doing anything. Let's, let's just get with our old buddies and play the shit we're used to playing. And because of that, it seemed that the fans kind of came along with it. Like, oh, cool. I like all these bands. I grew up with them. They're, they're getting active again, you know, and just a couple of years later after this kind of, uh, you know, reawakening or whatever you call it, where all the bands are getting back together. You also have bigger things happening. Like Ozzy is reuniting with Sabbath and they're, they're doing the big reuniting tour when they brought Godsmack and drain out with them. And then you also have Bruce Dickinson rejoining maiden for the brave new world stuff. And then shortly after that, you got Halford coming back to priest and everything. It just felt like everything from, from sadist up through the bigger underground bands like Testament and, and violence and stuff all the way up even higher, just anthrax and then priest and said, it just felt like everything just kind of came back to where it left off. Like whenever that was like 93, 94, 95, Whenever they everything kind of disappeared, boom. Like well, like you said, like the aughts. Like the early 2000 was like when metal decided to quit getting beat up by other shit styles. And, and it just came back. And because of that, it influenced a whole new breed and batch of bands. And, and I'm pretty sure it's been going strong ever since. I know that I hung out with Testament for quite a few years more. And when I left Testament in 04, I was steadily busy. Um, you know, a lot of good tours going on. Everybody was out doing it. And, uh, yeah, it feels like it's kind of like here to stay. I mean, there's all kinds of new incarnations and, and you know, new twists on it coming out. But it's it's still all derivative of, the, of that same thing. And it just, you know... We're, I agree. I'm I'm here in Denver right now, and it's it's you know Denver has a really good local scene, but I, I I've said like I don't see it ever getting less popular than it is right now. Like I feel like it had a period where like a lot of like metal like that wasn't like radio friendly was just kind of forgotten or considered like corny or whatever. But I don't ever think that it'll ever get to that lower low level again. I think a little it'll always be at least at this level. It's kind of what I've noticed. It's become generational too, because now you had the people in the eighties that are in their fifties or sixties that listen to it and their children and their children's children. So the scene is definitely becoming more of a generational scene where your testament is like your classic heavy metal. Sure. And, like that. And, then, and then there's also, you know, there is like the fashionable aspect of like, you know, girl, young girls wearing like, you know, rust in peace shirts and stuff like that. So I mean, and whatever, I mean, however you, however you get into something, you know, I, I'm not really one to judge. And we're going to pause one more time, get into a track from Testament. This is the title track off of 2016's Brotherhood of the Snake. This is Testament with Brotherhood of the Snake. <laughs>
we're back. My one question I was going to ask that was like hoping was going to be kind of like a lead in from that last thing was, I guess, like, how would you compare working with James Murphy versus like Alex Skolnick? Like, I guess at least like in a studio uh, setting, because they're, they're obviously like very, very different guitar players. Yeah, um, I've, I've never worked with Alex on a project of his own. So to compare them like that, I couldn't do. But as far as being in the same lineup, sharing a stage with them, I mean, they're they're pretty similar in like you get to certain shred levels, certain like godlike status, and you you have this kind of eccentricity about you. And you know, they're both quirky people, but they're both extremely extremely knowledgeable like really theory deep really like musician freaking you know just into it like yeah both those guys are super knowledgeable super flexible like i know james probably we're i don't know we we haven't seen each other in years i mean ever since james moved back to florida i don't think anyone's really hung out with him too much but when he was here in the bay area i mean i would just even when we weren't recording or doing something i would just hang with him because he was like the kind of guy that loved to go to like a used record store and just buy a stack and just go home and just start listening to him and so we would just get alan holdsworth and and also just unknown shit and just listen and he and it's like for like how weird a guy he is and how weird I am. It's like, we totally came together on listening taste. Like it was just like, dude, this is badass. He's like, yeah, I knew you'd liked it. Well, check out this one. Like, Oh, I never heard of that. What's that? As soon as the needle drops, like, Oh, this is killer. <coughs> so with James, it was a little more, you know, that kind of stuff hanging out and, and getting excited about music. And Alex is equally as open-minded. Like, that dude definitely knows his stuff, man. But he's a different personality. He keeps more to himself. Um, even when we're tour- on long tours and basically all we do is see each other every day, he finds a way to kind of create his own world in close proximity to everybody else. I kind of look up to that. You know, sometimes you, if you guys have ever put, you know, gone on a tour or traveled, you know, You've always heard the saying, you know, you get sick of each other. Well, it, it goes even beyond that. I mean, you get really freaking sick of each other. <laughs> but it's but it's not, like, destructive, though. I mean, you you don't get sick to the point where, I mean, you can't. I mean, a band like Testament has survived so long because they've, they've learned how to deal with it. Um, you say it's just, like, aggravation. I mean, my, I don't know, I've, I've done some touring type stuff in the past, but also, like, I work in an office with the same three guys every day and we have to deal with a lot of shit together and you know randomly like noises that people will make or like inflections of their voice will will be like very aggravating like more so than it should ever be and it's totally just because we're constantly together i'm assuming exactly exactly what i'm trying to illustrate yeah you know you know what i'm talking about and so when you when you reach that level of just where you're just like in the van and someone's talking, you're rolling your eyes like, God, why do I got to hear this again? I would always look over and see Alex got his headphones on. He's reading the freaking New York Times on his iPad or something. And then we go, then we transfer into the dressing room and everybody's like, you know, wants to take a shit or take a shower. And everybody's like in 
bumping into each other like fuck you know you wish you just had your own space and here's alex over in the corner with his guitar warming up on some freaking you know some jazz bebop stuff and he, he just he has this ability to just survive you know he just he's in his own world and it's it's i would just kind of be like okay well i'm not gonna get wrapped up in what is what's going on i'm just gonna kind of float away and do my own thing you know because until the schedule hits until we got the sound check and meet and greet and stage time until all the heavy stuff comes you know you just you could pick and choose what you're going to do you could either put yourself in the middle of this irritation or you could just float away and do what you want and, and freaking skolnick rules at that <laughs> so yeah, that is really so that he, is really admirable that's a really admirable trade i think for sure yeah. just, just i know like, when, you, when you said what, what's the difference between James Murphy and Alex Cole? I'm sure you didn't expect that, but I mean, that's how I would describe him because that's how I view him, you know? Yeah, he does kind of have like a, a zen sort of grounded vibe going. Real, seems like a together guy. It's awesome. I have a question for you. Um, two, two parts to this question. In 2007, uh, you recorded uh, Angel Down uh, with Sebastian Bach. An album that I, I'm really into. Um, how did you hook up with Sebastian? And give me one good Sebastian story. <laughs> Beware, man. You could tell I'm full of stories and the floodgates are open. And you bring Sebastian in the equation, we might run out of <laughs> He is story worthy, man. That dude is a character. The cool thing is I left on good terms. So... All my stories are obviously positive and I, there's no hostility between me and him, which is killer because I still, even though I don't really talk to him or see him very often, we just exchange quick messages here and there, but it's cool to be able to still call that dude a friend. Cause he's, he's something, man. He is, <laughs> he's a lot of whatever it is. He's just a lot, <laughs> but he's funny and he's cool. And the, and the cool thing about him, after getting to know him is he's just a freaking kid. Who's a music fan. Like he's, he's the pretty boy that everyone sees. He's the, you know, the skid row guy. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone with his shirt off. And he is all that. But when you get to know him, he's also talking about that person as like this other thing too. Like he doesn't live that he, he freaking wakes up in the morning and boy, you it's, I'll tell you, you stay at his house. You better get up before him. Because if you want to sleep later, you're not. He's he, he rolls out of bed on fire, and you can hear him down the hall making coffees. I mean, he's out there singing freaking Motorhead at the top of his lungs, <laughs> making coffee, freaking ready to go for the day. And it's just they're like, oh boy. <laughs> and he's he's a fascinating guy, man. His brother is like a hockey player, and yeah. His, oh and I'm a total I'm a total hockey geek. And his brother and his brother's friend fly out to London. We have this huge show. It's probably when we were on tour with Guns N' Roses. So the this, this show's wow. huge. 12,000 people. You know, giant dressing rooms, like arena style. And, you know, here's his brother, who I'm just geeking out. Just, his, yeah, dude, he, know, he played for my team. I'm a Tampa guy, so... Oh yeah, he was on the Lightning. I I recognize him from the Coyotes. I think he was. He kind of yeah. bounced around. He wasn't really super good. I mean, he was good enough to make NHL, but he didn't he last. A, he had a uh, Meniere's disease, so it has this like inner ear condition where he gets like really bad vertigo spells. 
So it's like he couldn't really he couldn't play like a full season. It sucks. He was probably he was talented. He just didn't have they had physical. I think he's like a goalie coach now or some shit. Oh, trippy. See, I didn't even know that. I met him. I played in a band with his brother. I never knew that about him. I wonder why he didn't last. But I was I was like he's backstage with a beer and of course you know him and his buddy are kind of dressed up nice. They took like a first class flight over and they're ready to like you know check out the chicks and everything i'm sitting there asking about freaking goalies and teams and arenas and he's just like dude buzz off like <laughs> the fuck <laughs> i want to rock out with my rock star brother and i'm like no dude fuck <laughs> that guy i don't care about rock let's talk about hockey i even had like a a little you know my change of clothes bag was this teal colored sharks bag and he's all so I imagine that's your clothes bag there. You're a Sharks fan? I'm like, well, yeah, that's my local team, man. I've been following them since they started. And he goes, oh, they got that Russian kid, Evgeny Nabokov. He's totally overrated. And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? He's like one of the best goalies in the league. And he just, so it was just weird talking to like Zach, this goalie, like arguing about how good the Sharks goalie is. And I was like fucking tripping. But he was he was a little overrated. I think part of it was because Nabokov was like 29 when he came into the, came to the NHL. So people were like, how was he a rookie? He won the rookie of the year. I remember he beat out Brad Richards. And it was like, how is a 29-year-old guy winning the rookie of the year? What the fuck? He's played in Russia for like 10 years. But that's cool, man. You're a Sharks fan. So you relate to living in like a non-traditional hockey market, but nevertheless having like a pretty solid fan base. Yeah, totally. And and since I was there for the first, you know, first games the first home games ever it felt feels like i you know got some some right to the team you know i freaking yeah, some, o- some owner ownership i feel the same totally. exact way they, dude. Yeah. they fucking owe me man <laughs> <laughs> but uh so it just basically started as a joke like we were playing a festival in germany i think it was rock hard or bang your head festival and Ice Earth was the headliner, and my buddy, all the way back from the Individual Thought Patterns tour, Ralph Santala, was playing guitar in Ice Earth, and then Testament is the direct support, so there I am, and then the band that played right before Testament was Sebastian Bach's solo band, and it was kind of funny, especially then because Sebastian Bach didn't I don't he put out some early solo album which was basically just a live concert doing Skid Row songs and a couple Bring Bach Alive is that what it is yeah he did a a couple of uh, he did a few of the last hard men songs one or two new songs and mostly Skid Row stuff yeah Damn, damn Mike you're a super fan dude that's good knowledge considering I'm on the inside, and the dude's slamming me with knowledge. It's killer. But, <laughs> but um, so my point is, besides that EP, it's pretty safe to say Sebastian doesn't really have anything going yet. He's just performing live under his name as the ex-Skid Row guy. So it was kind of funny. Like, it's not, it, it's not unexpected to see that show in Germany, because the German fans don't think, certain things are cheesy that other countries do or actually the rest of the world does basically but david hasselhoff (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly so 
we're not making total jokes, but there's there's a little ribbon going on with the Skid Row guy, and and you know he's a real flashy, flamboyant, loud guy, and so you know we we're walking down the little dressing room trailer village, and he comes flying out like Testament. Well, Chuck Billy, come here, dude. I want to see who's taller between me and you. You know he's standing up. Who's taller? Well, you're a big dude. I'm just looking at it. I never, never was into Skid Row. Like, to me, that was... I know to to the fans of that band, they wouldn't put it in this category because I guess Skid Row is a little heavier of that style. But to me, it might as well be Poison or Cinderella or something. I, I wasn't into any of that stuff. It's so, so weird how, it's so weird how, like, they seem to be the one band that, like, gets the most of like a pass from like a lot of the guys that don't otherwise listen to that music, but they like Skid Row. I don't know. Side side observation I've noticed. Well, I get it now. No, I get it now because you know I was I was in a small chapter of it now, and I mm. I see why I got to know Skid Row, Crash Course, and now I know the difference. I I didn't become a fan or anything. I didn't get like converted, but I do understand the difference now when you have you know. She's my cherry pie versus right, you know right. uh, slave to the grind. I could now I could tell the difference. Back then I just saw that shit and I just turned it off. Boom, not for me. Yeah, their second album was a lot heavier too. Slave to the grind. It was totally. definitely better than the eighteen in life one with the youth going wild and I didn't like that at all. But slave to the grind was a different kind of beast. Yeah, totally. Um, oh, I saw I even, my I, that that third record that they did that pretty much was during some human race yeah like i i would always encourage like when sebastian was kind of coming up with a new set i would always push for some of those songs i was like dude these are like like i know you guys were in your downtime and they were fighting a lot and a lot of them were on drugs and it it's a dark time in their memory but i go man for someone like me who's a total outsider like newcomer and i look at your three albums i'm like i favor this album like sure. out of those three there's okay. some interesting songs on there they're not and, you know, and I guess that's why they kind of fell apart, because they weren't here again and big guns and all that type of stuff. Right. But to me, you know, it was better. But anyway, so we're at this festival in Germany, and I'm in the catering, sitting next to Paul Bostaff, who's playing drums for Testament at the time. And we're just eating food, and there's a couple uh crew dudes you know techs or whatever they are at the other table and they're, hey what's up paul you know how's it going hey i want to drop a i want to i want to drop a word with you man because you know people but you know when sebastian gets home from this european trip like his whole band is pretty much splitting you know it's, he, he needs new musicians you know i think I think he's, you know, he's borrowing like a lead guitar player for this show. He really needs like a guitar player. And if you know anybody, you know, just let us know. We'll pass the word to him. He's looking for a musician, whatever. And Paul's just like, yeah, if I do, sure, whatever. And of course, here's me scheming. I know I knew damn well Paul wasn't going to know anybody for that guy. But for a joke, you know, because me and Ralph Santala just got the most brutal humor i mean we just rip on each other for fun and so i figure okay this is my chance i'm going to tell him that sebastian bach needs a lead guitar player and of course i'm going to get a fuck you poser so you know all this stuff from him i thought it would be the ultimate rip so i tell him ralph go over to sebastian bach's dressing room and freaking try out man and he's 
all right, yeah, whatever. Well, the show goes on. The bands all play. We do our thing. I didn't really follow up on it. I don't know what's going on. It was too, like I said, to me, it was kind of a joke. Get home from Europe. Ralph calls me from New Jersey. Dude, thanks for the recommendation. I got the gig. I'm like, what are you talking about? Dude, I'm in, I'm in New Jersey. Listen, say hi. What's up, TV? I hear Sebastian. I'm like, I'm like, what's going on? And he goes, I got the gig, man. You told me Sebastian needed a guitar player. And I went and talked to him and at his house we're working on new shit right now i'm like oh fucking way I'm like dude you played in fucking deicide and death and like what's up and he's all fuck it dude he's awesome i'm like all right whatever and he goes but guess what else i go i don't know what he goes i fired his whole lineup we're getting all new guys i'm like oh great and he goes yeah and you're my bass player i'm like what he goes yeah you're coming out or you're going to be the bass player of the band i'm like i'm like dude please like what the hell yep you're doing it and so sebastian gets on the phone talks to me fucking totally goes off you know and i I don't know they talked me into it i flew out there and learned all the songs and we had a freaking little group together and we're touring around i mean he paid well and at that time having just left testament in the middle of 04 and jumping on with Sebastian Bach's band, at that time, the venues were bigger, the crowds were bigger, the pay was a little, little higher, and it just felt like this weird step up into a new world, and I was just like, all right, it doesn't suck, this is cool, and he was just a totally awesome dude to me, like he, he had a, his older son, I think it was 19 at the time, and he played drums in like this death metal band that they were starting, and the dude is a total death control denied fan and he's just going on and totally nice kid. I, I actually miss him, man. It was cool. It was when I flew out to New Jersey to play monkey business, I missed the time hanging with his son, Paris talking about, you know, old death metal stories and stuff. He's a cool kid, but he knew everything. Like he's a total Sean Reiner fan. Gene Hoagland's his best drummer. Fucking wanted to know all about control denied and, <clears throat> and because his son was such a fan and and talked highly and you know unloaded all this knowledge about what i did i mean sebastian just bought it all he's just like okay cool good enough for me um the drummer we had was just a session player from florida i don't mean just a session player because mark super cool guy he's my friend but it's hard for people to recognize him because he works in a studio he did play on a demons and wizard record um you know, so he has a little bit of credentials, but it's hard to describe who he is. But him and Ralph didn't last very long, and I ended up getting Metal Mike and Bobby in the group. I knew those guys when they were in Halford's solo band when we toured Halford and Testament. So when we had that lineup, um, Sebastian was just like, look, I want you guys to be you. I want you guys to be like you were in Halford's, Steve, like you were in Testament. Don't change... To me, don't you know? We're not giving any nods to Skid Row. We're playing the songs that people like. He goes, because that's what identifies me to the crowd. He goes, but I want you guys to make me heavier. You know, when we're we, he goes, I want you guys to write songs for me. I want you to write in your style. You know, I want to scream on your stuff. I don't. I'm not sitting here going, no, it's got to be another. You know, Youth Gone Wild. He wasn't about that. He wanted. He wanted to be relevant. He wanted to appeal to a little bit younger, heavier crowd. 
And he just gave us full right to do, you know, obviously we had to play a big chunk of skid row hits. That's kept the crowds going and they love Sebastian and, you know, and all that stuff. But he was always into doing new stuff, fun covers, anything that came up that was fun. He was into it and it was cool. And that album was, was so good. And you, you had writing credit for a few of the songs too. How was it, you know, working with Sebastian creating music? It was killer. He, he listened, actually, I think that song was kind of floating around in my little bag for maybe say this. And we actually, we had a real quick uh, project that didn't go anywhere, but it was with Chuck Billy. It was a status and Chuck Billy. We were calling it suicide shift. And I had this kind of sadisty type, you know, it was a little more simple down because it was for a side project and, picture Chuck Billy singing on it and I don't know, it didn't really work out. And when Sebastian like, dude, you got any riffs? So it's like here, I just played him this song and he's just like, wow, that's got a lot of parts. He goes, but let me, let me sit with it for a while and see if something, you know, if I could sing some parts, he calls me back the next night. He's all, dude, I split it in half. You got two songs now. And he had all these, vocal passages and all these ideas to show me and it was just like wow cool so he took like an idea i had floating around turned it into two songs and we you know we we fixed them up gave gave them proper intros and made them standalone songs and you know some of the drum beats were maybe a little too edgy where we just kind of kicked it half time you know for sebastian style but uh, it fit in and everybody was writing you know everybody pitched in and he was totally, you know, he hired an uh, external songwriter. He used us in the band internally. Roy Z wrote a good handful of songs. And yeah. we went to L.A. as a band. We rehearsed for a week, like a proper band rehearsal. And then we went into the studio and set up, and we recorded that album live. We even had Sebastian in a vocal booth with a window right next to the little circle we were in. And we're recording live, and he's singing. I don't. I don't think he kept those vocal tracks as finals. I'm sure he probably went back in and refined them and stuff. But the essence, like being in the studio, we actually played, it was like total throwback to the old times, just playing live. Like when you're on a super short budget and you right. gotta, you know, where you're limited on time, you got to do it live. Well, this was a choice. We, you know, we obviously had a great budget, but we're just like, dude, we want to get a vibe. We want to play it live. You know, And those albums come out so good sometimes when you do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Sorry we were, interrupt you. We didn't even have to punch in our mistakes because we played every song like five, eight, sometimes ten times. And they had Roy had an assistant that would just go through and comp if he found a mistake, even on the drums, find a mistake. You just go through another passage to see where you played it right, and just you know. So we're playing old school live, but we got the advantage of having Pro Tools, so we're, they're just comping the good performances, and so you know, the, all the songs on the album are all completely you know live nobody recorded individually which is pretty much what 99 to 100 percent the standard nowadays so it was a cool vibe it was and sebastian's voice didn't last all day so um we and he liked his morning voice better so we would get early early starts we'd have a nice long lunch break where we'd all hang out cool vibe you know we'd wind up the afternoon and then once he said his voice was done we would just listen to everything we played during the day and watch Sebastian 
air guitar, air bass, air drum, and air vocal, everything, and we would just drink, and then eventually turn into live mic where everybody would go out and do silly shit. And every day was like a party, and it was fucking cool. I don't, I don't know if I've ever had such a vibe with a band in a studio like that, and it was awesome. And Axl Rose is coming over, just gonna, pulls up. Yeah, it's just white t-shirt yeah. on. He just walks in like this dude. How's it going, guys? We're like, don't. How's it going, guys? You're Axel fucking Rose, man. What the hell? And uh, he just no warm up, no scales, no breathing, no nothing. He just walks in there and screams like a banshee demon from hell. Just wow, fucking. I was just like, man. Same story with Skid Row for me. Guns and Roses can't stand it, but being in the same room with Axel with his freaking red hair and his beat red eyes and his fucking screamy banshee voice. I'm like, fuck massive respect, dude, that guy can belt it. <laughs> so yeah, it was fun, man. And the album came out. Sebastian was excited about it. We were playing a lot of the songs live. And I think eventually we had played every song at some point live. You know, a lot of bands skip good handful of songs, never, you know, their production songs only, but, I mean, we were playing even the acoustic ballad, everything, the heavy ones, the down-tuned song, whatever it was. He was like, dude, let's play it. You guys are killer musicians. You could play anything. Let's go. We're like, fuck, this is cool. Keeps it interesting. Keeps a variety going. So it was fun. I lasted two years. I toured with him for two years, helped him write that first album. And it was fun as hell. I just I couldn't keep up because once he latched on to Guns N' Roses and started being the main support, the the shows were just, there was so many and I was still kind of balancing working full time at that point. I just couldn't get out of my job really to, to go with them. So I just told them like the fact that you're blowing up and making me not go with you is a good sign, bro. I was like, you're doing great. I can't keep up. Get, get a bass player in here that can be gone from home for four months. You know, I got to go home. So it was cool. Awesome. 2007 also it's it seems like an interesting year you also did an album with necro uh you want to just say a couple words about how that all came about <laughs> i don't i don't really remember <laughs> um i mean i remember i just i don't have the specifics i think he might have just reached out and just uh, maybe just sent me an email or something i know that maybe he's a big, John... he's, a big he's like a huge lifelong like death metal guy so yeah, he told me that. He told me he was at the Sepultura Obituary Sadist show in New York. Of course, everyone was. I remember that was a huge, one of the big shows of that tour in 1990. He said he was there banging his head like a little death metal fan. Um, and I know that he had done, or maybe that same album he was working with, at least John from Obituary, if not all the Obituary guys. Um so being really, really close with Obituary, I'm sure my name got thrown in from those guys or something. But I, I think it was just a simple, just that dude just reached out, asked me if I wanted to play on a tune, and I said, okay, and just busted out the song, and that was it. It was pretty quick. I never really got to know him too much, but it was different. It was like some freaking rap song about thrash fans being stuffed together like sardines in a can or i don't know what he was singing about it was so funny uh, yeah you could, you could add rap to your to your giant discography 
<laughs> sure, one song with Necro qualifies me. I'm in the rap world now. Can't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> it might make the Hall of Fame quicker. But Actually, gonna... we just we just I just got an award from the History of Heavy Metal. What's it called? The History of Heavy Metal Hall of Fame or something. Testament yeah. got Testament got abducted into the Hall of Fame, and uh, everybody in the band received an award with their name on it. So. I guess if that thing's legit, I guess I'm a Hall of Famer. I don't know. It's kind right. of trip. Yeah. Yeah, that Necro album had Mark Morton from Lamb of God on it, had Scott Ian from Anthrax, had uh, Dave Elvison from uh, Megadeth, had quite a Ray Adler, Fates Warning, had quite a few metal guys on it. Brian Fair from Shadows Fall. Jeez. Quite a, quite a few metal guys on it. <laughs> I, I never really heard from him after that. I don't. I never really got to hear about how the record did or you know it was a weird just you know clearly i'm way out here in california so i don't know we're the last ones to go to bed in the world i don't really <laughs> get news out here <laughs> you have good weather though uh if you yeah if you like endless sunny days it's hot no rain drought yeah, well, I'm in upstate New York, so I get about eight months of winter, about you know 50 feet of snow. So after after about eight months of winter, I could use a little sunshine. <laughs> yeah, I suppose too much of anything really, you just get sick of it. Oh. I I love upstate New York. I don't I don't know all the places, but if you're somewhere recognizable, I would probably. Do you know? Have you ever heard of Syracuse? Oh yeah. I'm an hour and a half north of Syracuse. I'm about an hour from the Canadian border. I'm on a big thing called the Tug Hill Plateau, where the world record for snow has made a few times for snowfall. I had uh, a few years ago, in two and a half days, I had seven feet. Seven feet? Seven feet, yeah. I got pictures of, looks like I'm going through tunnels, building tunnels outside the house. The snow was up to the, I had to shovel my roof twice in that period. This just like doesn't even seem real to me. Like I can't fathom. I can fathom like a two feet of snow. That's a normal like day. Seven feet, Jesus. Seven. That's, that's like bigger than Steve. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, we, you know, that's not a normal, but I mean, a foot or two is normal for us. But we just had that crazy storm and it just shut everything down. Well, you get that. You get that kind of that. Uh, what do you call it? That that air current that comes off Lake Erie. Nor'easter. You know? We, yeah, get lot, yeah. we get a lot of nor'easters. So. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, you get the lakes and the plateau and everything. Yeah, it's a it's a perfect mixture where we are. Perfect. My friend works. Uh, he travels and he works for an insurance company. He works in Alaska. And then a couple winters ago, he's texting me. It's like February. He's like, "Yeah, it's 45 here, and uh, you know we didn't get any snow." I'm like, "It's 20 below here, and I got two feet." And he's in fucking Alaska. That's just depressing. <laughs> I know. Well, Alaska gets that Pacific. Right, ocean trip. So yeah, it's far north and it's Alaska and everything. But I also got a bit of knowledge that Alaska has the biggest mosquitoes anywhere. And I'm like, what? I was in Florida admiring the mosquitoes. They're they're not little black dots. They're not little bugs. They're They're like these. There's these giant. Yeah, they have stripes on them, and you could hear their wings. Like it's a whole different class, man. They're like huge destructive mosquitoes and and this chuck's girlfriend was like oh no oh no go to alaska i'm like wait a minute no no alaska's like 
steep mountains and pine trees and it's beautiful and crystal clear and she goes oh god no humid awful summers with too many mosquitoes i'm like what (laughs) my family's from russia and my dad was telling me because we both you know i grew up in florida and he always i don't always bitch about the mosquitoes and he'd be like so this uh one summer uh i had to go work in siberia uh in the summertime and he was just telling me you know siberia it's just like on on disturbed like wilderness for like thousands and thousands and thousands of miles plus it's like you know like ele- like different i don't even know like it's a different geothermal area whatever the fuck and yeah the biggest the biggest issue wherever he was was that they didn't have indoor plumbing and so at night nobody wanted to go take a piss because as soon as you whip your dick out you get swarmed on your dick by like a hundred gigantic fucking mosquitoes so it was this really big it was just like a it was a it was definitely a uh it's definitely a hassle just to do anything with these like, giant mosquitoes that are out to get you. So, yeah, I guess. Uh, so let's see, mosquitoes were like swampy, and then you hear about like Siberia, Alaska, and you're like, what? Yeah, I, I would Talk- imagine it's similar shit to like Alaska, Siberia, but I'm, yeah. I don't know. Don't know. Haven't been to either. No, me neither. But we can pretend, right? I've been to Alaska, not not Siberia, but I've been to Alaska. Yeah, I'm sure Alaska will suffice. You probably don't need to put Siberia. No, I don't see Siberia in my future. My Russian of, no. Your wife would be like... the cruise flights. Go, go ahead. Like, well, wife, I got our new vacation sorted. Yeah, we're going to Siberia. She would, uh, she'd think I was smoking something really crazy that day. Uh, roughing it, camping. Yeah, that'd be my ex-wife after the trip then, or before. But... <laughs> How is that? Is it, is it easy as that? Fuck, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like her, though. I have my second run, so the first one, I, I should have took to Siberia the first year we met. But, uh, <laughs> there you go. But, uh, this, this one, I keep around for a little while, yeah. But I have options with Siberia, so I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, it's always there, man, just in case. <laughs> we can stay in a nice gulag somewhere it's, in Siberia, I'm sure. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> So what? So like, as far as like the future, man, like on the horizon, you got any like projects you're working on right now? Um, any sort of future plans? Uh, I don't know. Let's uh, let's kind of get into that uh, sort of looking looking ahead portion of this, I guess you could say. Yeah, going up in the decades. Now we're in current times. Yes. Talking about the future. Yeah. So, um, it feels like lately I've done like a shitload of music videos which is trippy because I'm not normally like in these videos all the time. And then um, there's this, this band I play and they're based out of Tennessee called gone in April. It's like a, a, what do people call it? Symphonic symphonic metal or something. It's it, it doesn't sound like Nightwish, but you could say it's in that it points you in the right way. It's got the, opera singer combined with like death vocals and then uh, but then again when the, the music is much more challenging it's kind of a technical metal with nightwish singing i don't know i'm getting lost but anyway <laughs> this band gone in april um the connection the reason i got in this is the drummer yannick is he was the drummer in Quovatis when I did that record like a long time ago 20 years ago so we we kind of maintained in contact and and uh enjoy each other's shred level he's 
he's this hyper fast scientist mind drummer. It's crazy. Um, so we did a record in, I don't remember exactly. I'll say like 15. The 2016 you did one. Yeah, 15. Or, well, maybe it came out in 16. So that's probably the same one I'm thinking of. Anyway, Threads so. Of what's that? Threads of Existence. Uh, probably. Oh, sorry. So, <laughs> uh, we, so for that album, we did three videos, three music videos for those songs, for the songs from that record. And he, they've been releasing those very slow, like a lot of time in between each release. I think they just now put out the third one for that record. And while these videos are slowly being released, we just last year, well, it's just a few months ago, we started the recording of the next album. And um, I was there in December and finished my bass tracks and then came back in January and met the whole band met up in January and we went and did another batch of three songs. And so it's like, here's the songs we did a couple of years ago, slowly coming out now. And during this time, we're filming three more. So it, because of the time proximity, it feels like it's just been this big batch of videos we're doing. And then last summer I went to LA, we did the two spirits of fire videos with Ripper and all that stuff down there. And um, just, I think it was the end of 16. We did, um, we did the pale King video for the Testament thing testament album and then just just a shy of a month ago i went out to pennsylvania and did the music video for the the advanced track release for the new arch Matthäus album so something so you look over all these periods of years i played i don't really have any i mean just the death video from 93 but really hardly any videos at all and then all of a sudden in the past what two years or so it's just like bam like all these videos that's awesome. so that's kind of been kind of a current thing which i don't do know you, you're making put it into perspective i guess is why i'm kind of do you like, like do you like do you like making music videos i don't know i always would always feel like it would be kind of awkward for me like all right stand up there and like look cool and play like i don't know i feel like it would always yeah. be a little awkward you're you're on track it's it's like that i don't I like when they're done. I love when they're done. So I wouldn't say that I hate making them because I like when they're done. I like watching the whole band. I like the memories of doing it. I like having people check it out. And, and you know, and we're, we grew up with the, the video generation, MTV and everything. So music videos always felt like they're important. I don't know. They kind of faded out. You know, I don't think people think they're as important as they are. I think people still think they're fun to a degree but they're not as important as they were. But to me, it's a, it's kind of a necessity. I like it. Um, but the, the process of doing it that day of filming it, it's, it's pretty agonizing. It's, it's a lot of repetition and you're, you're really, really pretending a lot. And if you let it get into your mind, you will kind of freeze up and feel silly. So the, having done so many in a recent time, I really got into this mode where you better just from take one, you better just get into it because if you're if you're just going to be half-assed because you don't feel it or 
you feel weird or something. They're, they're not going to use that footage and they're going to keep making you do it until they get what they want out of you anyway. So <laughs> you realize like, you know, when you, when you're there filming it, you realize you project like what the final is going to look like. And you say, okay, I'm going to do that just right off the bat. Just so I was get I was getting a lot of my individual shots done first and second take, you know, makes camera guy happy. He's like, Oh, I got what I need. Perfect. So you just, you kind of, you know, yeah, you feel silly and it's a, it's, it's tricky to do it, but once you just understand what you need to do, you just do it, you know, you, cause you're faking it. Yeah. You don't have that crowd in front of you. You know, you're not really playing and you feel weird, but once you realize, Hey, that cameraman is just important as 5,000 people standing in front of me, you give him that performance and you're, and then you're off the hook. You're done. He's like, boom, I got what I need. I all the little edits, all the little shots I need to integrate in this video. Boom. I got the energy I need. My angles are good you're done and then you just go take a break and let the other guys go do fucking 10 takes you know <laughs> a, I, I always remember i there was like this fan made cannibal corpse documentary from like five years ago it was like i remember the main thing that really stood out it was like eight hours long it was like way too long but i remember they get on the portion where they talk about like the ace ventura movie or whatever and they said what was most awkward about that is that it was completely silent while they were filming that but they're having to like, you know, headbang and there's an entire crowd of people like, you know, fainting, being at like a death metal show. And that's it's it was just so awkward for them because it's like they're not playing. There's no music. It's completely silent. And, you know, people are filming and it's just yeah, I, I always thought that aspect would have been would have been what would kind of throw me off the most. Just I, don't I never know had to do it that harsh of like I never had to do a music video with silence. That would be really, really hard to pretend to um with like the god in april stuff for example and i think spirits of fire the same way we had uh we use our in-ear monitors that we normally use on stage so we have a little wireless pack in our pocket mm -hmm. and it has a volume control on it so if you know crushing your eardrums gets that energy going gives you what you need to to move around you know you got that option and you're playing to your song and you know and that's going on and then in the cases where we don't have the in-ear monitors, like with this Arch Matthäus thing we just did a few weeks ago, they just we were in the theater that Faith's Warning was going to play in that night. We we filmed early in the day, and they just cranked the song up on the PA and through the wedge monitors, and and it was, I mean, we knew we weren't playing what we were hearing, but it was loud enough that it felt like we were. So it was it made it comfortable. It made it feel as normal as it could. And, you know, so, you know, you're pretending to a degree, but if you got that volume crushing and, you, you and it's, it's your music too. So it's not like you're, it's not like you're feigning playing to somebody else's shit. So, yeah, that's true. I just, but yeah, had, one had to do it to silence, man. That's brutal. <laughs> I, that stuck. Definitely. They I just had a bad producer. For Sorry, sure. bro. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you. No, um, I just have one last quick question because, uh, you know, we've had you forever. Um, do you think Spirits of Fire will be doing any touring? I really don't know. Um, I guess it would be easy to say no because it's, it started out to be strictly just a studio project. I mean, the, the musicians were just handpicked from Frontiers Records. Um, we got together, we did what they asked. You know, we wrote the songs, we recorded them, we put everything. 
you know, that a band could possibly put into it. And when the album was done, we figured it was done and they were just going to sell it. But um, I guess it came out pretty good to their standards. Um, so the music videos that we did weren't part of the original plan. I guess that kind of came up because they just said, hey, this sounds really good. You know, it's it's one thing to put out a record and promote it like whatever level one or whatever you know just some ads and this right. and that but they said you know we're gonna really get behind this it'd be cool to have a couple of music videos what's the chance of all you guys getting together you know right. tim's from ohio chris is all the way out in new york where you are and zonder me and zonder california boys but we're like eight hour drive apart so it was it was a challenge to get us together but when we did it was the first time that the four of us had met all four of us so like there's a lot of interconnections like chris and ripper have a connection doing stuff together you know me and ripper have been on charred wall so there's these little crisscross connections but it was the first time all four of us were there and we were chilling out talking and we you know we had a pretty hard work day with those two videos and and that kind of created a cool bond working with people you're not used to standing next to jamming and and we, at the end of the day we were like wow this is you know it was it was kind of fun to do the record you know but we're just exchanging files and doing group right. emails and, and it was cool the result was fun but when we got together then that that you know that thing called being in the same place at the same time you know being in person right that quality of, of meeting each other and doing stuff was like hey we get along pretty good man and you know it's, if there's such a good album it's uh, yeah and we just throwing around ideas like great. hey man if people are into this yeah. And they want to see us play. Do you guys want to do a live show? And we said, I'd yeah. To... If, if everything falls into place the right way, we all said, you know, hey, obviously it's a pretty big logistical nightmare with everybody being in full-time bands. But if, if the time window opens and there's a budget, we would be into it. So we're, really what we just said is, well, let's let the fans decide. You know, if there's a demand for it, you know, if, if there's enough people receiving it well, then we'll give it a go. But if it's just like kind of this little bump, like, right. Ooh, kill record. And then it just kind of fades out, then whatever. And then we don't have to worry about it. Yeah, but it's so good. Such a good album. This is one of my favorite early in the year, but it's one of my favorite albums this year. I mean, uh, so far, I really been digging it for the last month. Wow. Right on. Yeah. I've been kind of detached. I don't, I don't really know what, what I, I know Chris has been doing pretty good from being the kind of main promoter of it. And, he sends links to some of the interviews and reviews, and I catch word. It looks like it's doing that. I really, it just went from that right straight into the next thing, into the next thing, into the next thing. So I don't know. I guess it's doing okay. And so I, that's basically like what I said. It's like, I don't know. It'd be easy to say no, but I don't want to say no because we left it, you know, the, the option there that if, if the fans are digging it and they want to see it live and the labels behind it, well, then we will. Awesome. Well, hopefully so. Cause I'd love to see you guys live someday. Uh, this is just, uh, like I said, it's such a good album. Uh, and you have so many albums that I dig, like, you know, getting ready for this. I you know, broke out some of my old death. I guess I've got a human on vinyl. Oh yeah. And I've got some other, you know, and I started listening to some of my sadist CDs and, uh, fucking the gathering is, is, Probably my favorite Testament album. I really like how a lot of those uh, death like reissues from about ten years ago, like how sonically, how I feel like they they really nailed the mix, a lot, made it a lot more I don't know like full bodied. But that's just kind of my opinion. But yeah, I really especially like the human reissue. It just sounds so amazing. It was like hearing parts of that record that I didn't hear 
the first go around, you know? Right. I still well, it's not, it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's not easy. It's not hard to outdo nineties technology, you know, <laughs> this is true. So, yeah, I think they're, it, it would be stupid to say they're not improved, but I personally wish there was a little more, I mean, the, the human was just, just remixed. It was like, here, it's done. We're like, wait, you know, there was no, like, we were all part of the mix of that album. And the individual, I don't know why that one was remixed. There was never any word or desire to remix it. Mm-hmm. But um, that one especially bothers me because, you know, it's the same as humans. We were all there for the mix. It felt like the band was producing it. I mean, Chuck was the boss for sure, but he, he liked our opinions. And, and our opinions were based around Chuck's music and band anyway so we weren't trying to change death we were just you know offering our opinion within context and so when it was done at that time we felt happy with it and then when they did the remix it felt like they could have brought in somebody's opinion i know i wish it had this and this and that and that but whatever they're it's it's always it's always very tricky to bring up like reissues to like people that played on the original records because you never know how they're gonna react. Like some people, oh yeah, I like it. Some people are like, that's cool. They didn't ask us what we think, you know, like shit like that. So it's it's always yeah, kind of a, it's a loaded question. Category. Yeah, that's me. Well, whatever. I mean, like I said, it you can't ignore the fact that there is some improvement. You know, yes, they are better. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I don't want to bitch too much, but <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, those are cool. But that's cool. You guys are into, I mean, covered everything, man. I mean, from the old sadists, you guys know about autopsy. We talk about Sebastian even, freaking all the new stuff. I don't know. I guess the only thing to add is just to throw in the current state of Testament that we just have a big old batch of new songs we're working on. So a new album is inevitable, man. It's, it's going to happen. So pretty psyched about that new, you know, cause the last one we felt was pretty cool. Got real good reception. I'm sorry, guys. Give me one second. Dang. I think it's time for another vodka soda. No, it's just time for a new fucking XLR cable. Oh, well, you got Guitar Center in Denver, don't you? <laughs> Somewhere uh, behind, like some, but between a couple dispensaries, I'm sure there's some place to get a new XLR cable. <laughs> I love Denver, man. Every time we go there, it's, it's just it's the vibe of the city is just cool. I don't know. I mean, you you live there, but as a very infrequent visitor, it's it's one of the cool cities. It's cool. Sometimes I wish it was a little bit more diverse, just because I don't know. It seems to attract like more and more it seems to be attracting just this like kind of bland like successful like late 20 something like white person that i don't know i don't seem to have a lot of in common in common with but um <laughs> there's still there's an awesome metal scene there's a really cool band from here called chemists which is doing some really awesome stuff i've been uh paying attention to there's a yeah chemists it's like uh k-e-k-h-e-m-m-i-s they uh I don't know, I oh, guess okay. Decibel gave him like the album of the year a couple of years ago. So oh. kind of cool. Check them out. I always like to get recommendations on good new music because when people ask me, like, hey, what are you listening to? You know, what's new? What's and I'm like, I don't know. I'm always listening 
to music I have to learn. It's like I barely get that time to just like uh, it feels like and because of that, because I'm always learning like metal riffs and I have this constant click track that's always involved in it's not like a relaxing. It seems like that when I do put on something to just jam, it's like kind of like classic rock or something that's just that I don't have to think about. So I don't and I miss the days where I was like current where I knew what the new cool stuff was. So it's. I always ask people for recommendations, so I'll look into your chemist that does not spelled like chemist. <laughs> oh, not chemist, chemist. There's a, the other cool local band. They're just like kind of a like throwback, like a death metal band. They're called Oh Feather and Bone. They're pretty cool, even though they have like kind of a metalcore name. They're definitely not a metalcore band. They're just like straight up death metal, Cookie Monster vocal style. So that's your thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I've been around that stuff so long, it's just kind of worn out for me. I don't know. I mean, once in a while, someone does it kind of different or good, but I'm not like a big Cookie Monster fan. <laughs> I, I know Shocker. Oh, how could you say that? It's like, well, I can say whatever I want. I'm a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I, don't, I don't have to worry about any, any uh, Cookie Monster fans getting alienated, fortunately. Nope. Yeah. Well, when you stand next to Chuck Bill every night, I mean, it's like, I don't, I don't care who, between the mic cuppers to the screamers, I mean, nobody has the power of that dude. I mean, we could live in his rib cage. It's like he's a big <laughs> dude, and there's a big voice that comes out of that big dude, and he, he's proven time and time again that he could out death anybody. Whoa, he's huge. So. And when I hear this blah, 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 little scat vocals, like whatever, I'm just not into it. <laughs> it's like, dude, I just want to rock, man. You guys want to play freaking here, here again? <laughs> it's it's hard to listen to that when you work with freaking people like Sebastian Bach and Ripper Owens. I mean, amazing totally. vocalist. I mean, it's it's hard to go back to that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm huge Ripper. I love the two fucking Priest albums that Ripper did. I've love I love his category of work. I mean, I just uh, I think those two albums, you know, are, are drastically underrated. Well, and Mike probably is familiar with a singer I've done a ton of projects with from upstate New York named John West. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I knew you, you got to know that guy. I mean, even even good metal fans would know him. He's you know with Our Tension and Royal Hunt and stuff. But man, it's like I think I've done about six records with john we've done a lot of stuff together and that i mean you know he, that's a high-pitched singer man he's oh absolutely he's got, yeah he's got the upper register so oh, absolutely he's worked can, with so many people too you know besides royal hunt he's done stuff with kazi powell and he's done stuff with uh just a ridiculous amount of people artisan. including me that's yep. unbelievable <laughs> No, I'm I'm bragging because I'm like a super fan of his. So it's like yeah. when I'm when I'm getting tracks at my house emailed to me like here play on this, and then I have the ability to mix how I want, and all of a sudden I'm in control of his vocals. Like I sweeten them up with some reverb and just crank it extra louder than everything and just blast it on my home studio and just I'm like holy crap, John West is singing in my house right now. This is awesome. <laughs> first first album we did Royal Haunt in '99, Fear. I thought was just so amazing and such a, a jump from, you know, the previous vocalist. I just was like, wow. I remember getting a sample of it in Brave Worlds and Bloody Knuckles. I used to put a CD in the magazine, if you remember that. 
And they used to oh, yeah, hell yeah. stuff, and I was like, oh, this, fucking, this is amazing, you know. It was uh, so different than D.C. Cooper, and I just loved it. I got, got yeah. into him at that point. Oh, yeah. He's a killer. So, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm, a little, I'm a little bit more fan of, of singers, singer-singers, because, um, I don't know, to me, it's, it's a unique thing. I mean, I guess anybody could play guitar, bass, or drums. Obviously, there's different talent levels and stuff, but um, singing is, is a very unique instrument because it's just 100% physical, and somebody who can sing well, anybody like from John West style to Chuck Billy, you know, Sebastian Ripper, these guys are singers. Yeah. And, and if you do it well, that's just so impressive to me because I absolutely right. cannot sing. I don't pretend to even sing. I know that Testament concerts, you see me backing up Chuck Billy, but that's because he's also a coach. Like, <laughs> right. Let's do it. Get up there. Whoa, whoa, come on. Oh, awesome with Chuck is he's got so many different layers. I mean, at some point it sounds like a death metal, and then it, you know, and then he's singing, just singing songs like Return of Serenity, and and then he's you know pulling stuff off like Demonic, or he's just got Total. such a such a contrast. I'm, I'm a huge Testament fan too, you know, for years. I've seen I've seen you with them. I've seen them live a bunch of times, and uh, yeah, like I said, I really dig the Gathering. I really dig their last three albums. The last one, the other two before it. I think that they're putting out. It's amazing to say. I think they're, you, you guys are putting out the best music of your career now, and I love the old stuff. Yeah, it's like the old stuff is their kind of their peak. I mean, they had they were on FM radio. They were doing music videos. Atlantic Records. You know, yeah, totally. But it seems like since basically like Low, Demonic, Gathering, it's like since the, the later catalog seems to be like hits hits that spot with the fans a little better it's it's not as big as they were in their first four records but it's kind of i don't know you're you're kind of explaining it too so you know where i'm going with it but oh, without a doubt i mean from the formation of damnation right up through the dark roots of earth to brotherhood of the snake i mean I, and you know going back to the gathering and demonic it's just progressively getting better and yeah, just, uh, I agree. Songwriting wise, and you know, we got great players in the band. Always, it's just yeah. uh, you know, and it's heavy. It's heavy, but he sings too, and he puts in the you know some death vocals sometimes, and he puts in the, the hard vocals, and it's just such a good mix. Totally. Do you and guys ever? Do you guys ever have to? Do you guys ever? I shouldn't say have to, but do you guys ever play the ballad when you, when you guys play shows now, or is that not even a not even a consideration? Um. I don't think they've played that song since probably mid nineties. Okay. Yeah. That's what I would assume. It's just, it's just such a, hold on. Holy crap. My dog just violently ripped up my freaking earbud. That hurt. <laughs> She's going crazy. I got to feed her. Um, yeah, the ballad, there's a, there's another ballady song. Is it, is it called the legacy or the, that's uh, one of legacy. those. Is that the kind of a ballady song too? Yeah, legacy is a ballady song. Yeah, we did that one in the Gathering tour. Um, so yeah, like two thousand, two thousand one, we were doing that style of song. But I don't know if they've gone back and done anything like that since. The, yeah, probably like oh god, it's already twenty nineteen. So. <laughs> yeah, past seven, well, I was gonna say ten years ago, but fuck, it's closer to twenty years ago. Oh, yeah. um, 
we had a big, we had a headlining tour that lasted Europe, US. It's the one we did just a couple of years ago. We brought Sepultura, then the European side was Annihilator. We had a massive set. We played like almost two hours every night. We had a big stage production. We were doing uh, solos in between songs. It was like a, put a lot into the show part of it, big production and everything. And I remember thinking of the set list for that and we had rehearsed Return to Serenity. And um, and Chuck was doing pretty good. Like we were actually more positive about it than he was of of his performance. Um, I think he felt a little self conscious. His, I mean, he's going to be fifty seven this summer. Um, the dude's strong and he still brings it, but I mean, he's just facing limitations of aging and sure. just so many years of belting out death style and and harsh. It just got away. You know, he's not like if if we were playing ballads like every year, he would kind of be in the pattern of it. But to just try to pull out a ballad after so many years of not singing when you're just used to just putting so much power in it, he just he didn't feel totally comfortable doing it. You know, honestly, if someone else heard it, they probably would have been cool with it. So it wasn't like this horrible sound by any means. But he just he just felt like he couldn't get that old hymn back the way he wanted to feel it. So he just we kind of had that like oh well this you know we rehearsed it a lot you know in this week so you know anytime during the tour you want to brush up on it and sound check and maybe get back to it work it in and that was the plan but it just seemed like once we packed up after rehearsal and got on the plane we just left that song in the dust so i don't i don't think testament really is going to do those old ones i know that there's a there's a ballad piece um that's going to go on the new record. I haven't really heard much of it. It's such a new song idea, but um, Eric's been writing it on his acoustic guitar just to make sure that he keeps it in a ballad frame. Like he doesn't even want to just do a clean tone on an electric guitar. He's like, no, we're going to write it on acoustic. You know, we'll go full production in the studio, but this week, if we want it to be a true ballad, we're going to do it acoustically. And I got a cool Ibanez acoustic bass, you know, big body and, He's like everything. We're gonna do everything acoustic. It's gonna be a real ballad. So, <laughs> so the the testament ballad may still exist, and if and if it's a new one, you know that Chuck, you know, creates at this age, at this point in time, like maybe he'll he'll be totally comfortable, and maybe we'll actually do a ballad live. Who knows? Nice. Well, uh, that might be the yeah. That might be the most metal fucking way to end this. Uh, this interview on a ballad, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a fucking ballad. Well, damn, that song "Return to Serenity" was on FM radio. I mean, sometimes you know we alluded to it earlier when you talk about how bands have like a cheesy hit, maybe that gets them on the map, and then they just go out live and play all these other killer songs. You know, ballads, you know, they might be a little wimpy or whatever, but man, sometimes. You hit it the right way, and it gets your band a lot of opportunities. So I don't know if Testament needs those opportunities anymore, but we're going to give it a shot. <laughs> you guys, up and coming band, trying to impress the uh, the record yeah. execs. Right. Right. We're all in our fifties, paying our dues still. <laughs> I just wanted to say too, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, it, it's been amazing talking to you. 
and uh, it's just uh, so many great stories, and and I really uh, appreciate all the music you put out over the years. Uh, it, it, it just like I said, I dig so much of your music and, and your style. So thank you for making time for uh, you know us and and uh, telling us all these great stories and whatnot. It's been amazing. Well, I want to thank you guys, man. It's you guys are definitely full of a lot of compliments, and I appreciate everything you said. And you know, thanks for the the attention and and the cool chat. For sure. Hopefully, maybe someday in the future we can get you on again. Sure. If anybody feels like being bored again, we'll just oh, we'll break it. It's been amazing. <laughs> it's not been boring at all. You kidding me? I probably no. talked to you till morning. But my wife is <laughs> yeah. giving me the go home sign. So. Yeah, for sure, man. We've been we've been geeking out the whole time, man. It's yeah. been amazing. Absolutely. Well, cool. cool. It it was fun for me too. So thanks for having me, guys. <laughs>